This is VOA News. I'm Alexis Strope. The leader of Yemen's Houthi militant group says they will introduce military, quote, surprises in their ongoing Red Sea attack operations against seagoing vessels. VOA's Rick Pantaleo reports. The Iran-backed Houthi rebels have been repeatedly attacking civilian cargo ships with missiles and drones since mid-November 2023. This is Abdul Malik al-Houthi, the leader of the Houthi militants. Our military operations will continue and advance, and we have surprises that our enemies will not expect at all. U.S. and U.K. militaries have launched joint responses to some of the attacks. Houthi militants say they are acting in solidarity with Palestinians against Israel's military actions in Gaza. Rick Pantaleo, VOA News. U.S. officials officials reacted with concern at the news of civilians killed while trying to get humanitarian aid in Gaza. VOA's Jeff Custer reports. Speaking to reporters as he left the White House Thursday, U.S. President Joe Biden said they were still gathering information on the incident, and as he understood it, there were two versions of what happened. U.S. Agency for International Development Chief Samantha Powers, who was in the West Bank Thursday, said regardless of the circumstances, the incident should never have happened. I know investigations are underway to find out exactly, again, what happened today. But again, a core principle that applies everywhere USAID and our partners work around the world is that desperate civilians trying to feed their starving families should not be shot at. Jeff Custer, VOA News. For pictures, videos, stories, and more, follow The Voice of America on X, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And for additional stories, 24 hours a day, visit voanews.com. This is VOA News. Congress has passed another short-term spending measure that would keep one set of federal agencies operating through March 8th and another another set through March 22nd. The extension averts a shutdown for parts of the federal government that would otherwise have kicked in at 12.01 a.m. Saturday. The bill now goes to President Joe Biden to be signed into law. The short-term extension is the fourth in recent months. Lawmakers are voiced are voicing increased optimism that it will be the last before Congress approves two separate spending packages totaling more than $1.6 trillion for the full fiscal year. Pentagon leak suspect Jack Texaria expected to plead guilty in, in this federal case. AP correspondent Ed Donahue reports. Texera had previously pleaded not guilty. He is the Massachusetts Air National Guard member accused of leaking highly classified military documents about Russia's war in Ukraine and other sensitive national security topics on the social media platform Discord, which is popular with people who play online games. Investigators believe he led a private chat group called Thug Shaker Central. Court papers show the judge was asked to schedule a change of plea hearing next week. He's been behind bars for close to a year. Authorities haven't talked about a possible motive, but accounts of those in the online private chat group describe Texera as motivated more by bravado than ideology. I'm Ed Donahue. The views of the Pacific Ocean from Alan Ashavi's clipped up. Are breathtaking, but underneath lurks a danger to the dream home he's been building for the last 12 years, landslides caused by atmospheric rivers. Emma Gell from Reuters reports. Atmospheric rivers are storms, referred to as rivers in the sky, that dump massive amounts of rain. They can carry up to 15 times the volume of the Mississippi River, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. When one hit California in early February, it knocked out power to more than one million people and caused a state of emergency for eight counties with a combined population of more than 20 million. 
Over the years, California has invested heavily in development along the coastline. Not only luxury homes, but energy and transportation infrastructure. Now, infrastructure on that coastline is on the verge of collapse. Scientists have said that climate change will make atmospheric rivers larger and possibly more destructive. Emma Gell from Reuters. The Dutch government has spent more than 166 million euros dealing with the aftermath of the downing of Malaysia Airlines flight over eastern Ukraine in 2014. The costs identified in an audit that was reported Thursday included repatriating victims' bodies and investigating and prosecuting those responsible for the downing. MH17 was flying from Amsterdam to, to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, when it was shot down with a Russian-made book missile fired from territory inside eastern Ukraine, controlled by separatist rebels. The 298 people killed included 196 Dutch citizens. For additional stories, visit voanews.com. I'm Alexis Strope, VOA News. Morning, Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, March 1st. And here are some of the stories we are covering. Chad's prime minister aims to prepare his country for free and fair elections later this year. From day one, when I was appointed prime minister, we made sure that we have independent bodies in charge of the election. We made sure that even the constitution we have introduced improvements and the laws for the election introduce the possibility for independent people to run. Haiti's Prime Minister is in Kenya for talks with President Ruto about deploying 1,000 police officers to Haiti. The UN calls for protection of human rights and health as the world marks Zero Discrimination Day today, Friday. Amnesty International urges Ghana's president not to sign into law the country's anti-gay bill. Amnesty International is urging the president not to sign this bill. It is one of the most draconian bills on the continent, aside Uganda. And one of the finalists of the 2023 Women Building Peace Award will discuss what the recognition means for the work she does. Those stories, plus Samson O'Malley's sports, are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Chad's Prime Minister, Success Masra, says that he is committed to strengthening the country's institutions as a priority for his new administration. Masra, a former opposition leader, was appointed at the beginning of the year after his return from exile in the U.S. Prime Minister Masra tells viewers Jackson Mungayi that as the country prepares for elections and a transition to civilian rule, his main task is to reform the economy and electoral institutions for free and fair elections. We started the flight, which is a transitional period. We have a pilot, a co-pilot, and we want to have a soft landing. But we go through, you know, some zones of turbulence. But this is normal, you know, when you take a flight. This is something that happens. We had one in 2022, Black Thursday. We had, uh, you know, one also during the last days. And I want to pay tribute to all those who lose their lives because no matter where they come from, they are Chadians and their blood is Chadians' blood. And as the head of, head of the government, this is really something which is not good for, for no one. Mm. But this is also where uh, we should uh, rethink and uh, find in this uh, difficult situation a stone of hope and uh, make sure that through the reconciliation 
and through uh, unity, uh, we make sure that we have a soft landing to make sure that, you know, by end of the year, Chadian people can choose their leaders. Mm. In this case, the soft landing is the free, fair elections. Free, fair election and inclusive election. Right. Because this is why, uh, from day one, when I was appointed prime minister, we made sure that we have independent bodies in charge of the election. We made sure that even the constitution we have introduced improvements. And the laws for the election introduced the possibility for independent people to run. Mm. For women, you know, a minimum number and percentage for women, mandatory for every party, for the, political, for the youth, and for rural areas to make sure that there is an ownership also mm. at uh, national level. And we intend and we are going to train around 50,000 volunteers, you know, to be able to handle the poll boxes, etc. Mr. Prime Minister, finally, given the regional challenges, uh, particularly in the Sahel region, how is Chad contributing to the regional security and stability? I think there is no hazard here. Our country, Chad, is the geographic center of Africa is in Chad. Mm. The oldest man discovered in the world is in Chad, Tumai. So what we offer to the world is our humanity, despite the fact that we have development challenges. And this is the role that Chad is playing. This is the role that we intend to play in the Sahel region and above. I was mentioning the fact that despite the very difficult uh, situation in Sudan, we kept our borders open to make sure that we can welcome our brothers and sisters who are flying, you know, who are leaving their countries, going away because they are seeking home. Do you offer them home? Which shows, I think, our humanity. People offer everything. Mm -hmm. But now, because we stood up with dignity, we need also a support of our friends Friends of Chad, friends of Chadian people, etc. Success Mazdara is Chad's Prime Minister. He spoke with U.S. Jackson Vunganyi in Washington, D.C. Amnesty International is urging Ghanaian President Nana Akufuado to respect the human rights of all persons and not to sign the country's anti-LGTBQ bill into law. Ghana's parliament passed the Human Sexual Rights and Family Values Bill this week, criminalizing same-sex relations. It imposes a prison sentence of up to three years for anyone convicted of identifying as a LGBTQ+. One of its sponsors says the bill promotes Ghanaian family values and human rights. Genevieve Patenton is Amnesty International's Ghana Executive Director. She tells me that the bill is draconian and violates Ghana's constitution. Amnesty International is quite disappointed that Parliament went ahead and passed this bill. However, it hasn't been a surprise because Parliament has been pushing for the passage of this bill since its introduction in 2021. So not surprised, but definitely disappointed that the passage has actually gone through. I did speak with uh, a member of parliament who is one of the uh, sponsors of this bill, and he defended the bill saying that uh, this bill promotes Ghanaian values and human rights. So for me, I personally am a Ghanaian. I was born here and I personally do not feel the bill promotes any Ghanaian culture. How do you define culture? First of all, the bill is completely against our 1992 constitution, which 
clearly states that human rights for all must be protected. We've also looked at, you know, memos were sent to Parliament during the readings of the bill, both from Chief um, Office of the Attorney General and also the Commission for Human Rights and Administrative Justice. And they all advised that the bill was completely against international human rights law and it was also against Ghana's constitution. Not forgetting that it's a private member's bill and has public funding implications as well. What do you hope that President Nana Akufuado would do? Amnesty International is urging the president not to sign this bill. It is one of the most draconian bills on the continent. Aside Uganda, we all know that Uganda has passed a similar bill. It is going to silence journalists, it's going to silence academics, advocates, human rights defenders, and it's going to impact a lot of people. People are going to be accused of these things. Currently, since the bill has been passed, there have been forced evictions of persons who are suspected of being part of the LGBT community. There have been people that have been sacked from their jobs just because of suspicion of being gay. So already the bill has had a negative impact on Ghana, and it's going to be worse. There have been um, reports of pockets of violence against LGBT community or persons who are suspected. Now, the bill is not even clearly defining who is LGBT, who is gay. You know, it's a very vague definition. So is it the way I walk? Is it the way I talk? Is it my haircut? What makes me gay? So these are some of the issues we have with the bill, and we are urging the president not to sign. Genevieve Patterson is Amnesty International's Ghana Executive Director. She spoke with us from the capital, Accra. Minority groups in society are often subjected to discrimination globally. This is according to a United Nations report that shows there is not much progress as far as discrimination is concerned. As the world marks zero discrimination day today, March 1st, the UN is calling for the protection of human rights as a path to protecting health for all. Maureen Ojiambo reports. Today is the 10th anniversary of Zero Discrimination Day with the theme of protecting everyone's health and rights. Countries and organizations are making efforts to ensure equality and fairness for all regardless of gender, age, sexuality, ethnicity or HIV status. But progress in achieving zero discrimination is at risk. UNAIDS Executive Director Winnie Bianima says the attacks on rights are a threat to freedom, democracy and health. Global solidarity has secured progress on human rights and towards equality. Today, 50 million more girls are in school since 2015. But this progress is not secure. Attacks on the rights of women and girls, attacks on LGBTQ people and of other marginalized communities are on the rise. The forces pushing back human rights are also rolling back democratic gains, such as the right of citizens to organize. The United Nations Program for HIV-AIDS UNAIDS says minority discrimination leads to failing public health as these communities are pushed away from vital health and social services. Omunyana Rujeje is the head of Human Rights UNAIDS Africa. Public health efforts are undermined when laws and policies and practices or norms lead to punishment and discrimination or stigma for people who are 
minorities, sexual minorities, um, based on their gender, sexual orientation, migrant status, whether or not they use drugs, um, and if they're involved in sex work. At the start of AIDS pandemic 40 years ago, two-thirds of countries in the world criminalize LGBTQ plus people. Today, two-thirds of countries do not. UNAIDS appeals to support for women movements and movements of the rights of LGBTQ plus people, racial justice, economic justice, climate justice, and for peace. Dianyema says as communities across the world stand up for rights, the United Nations supports the move. It is only by protecting everyone's rights that we can protect everyone's health. Through upholding rights for all without discrimination, we will be able to achieve the sustainable development goals and to secure a safer, fairer, kinder and happier world for everyone. The UN says on this Zero Discrimination Day and throughout the entire month of March, various events and activities will serve as a reminder to this crucial lesson and emphasize the call for action by protecting everyone's health and rights. For View Africa, I am Moreno Jumbo in San Francisco. on the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, March 1st. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And still to come on our program, Something O'Malley Sports. Asian Prime Minister Ari Henri arrived in Kenya on Thursday to try salvage a plan for Kenya to deploy 1,000 police officers to the troubled Caribbean nation to help combat gang violence. According to the Associated Press, Henri was invited by Kenyan President William Ruto to finalize modalities for agreements between the two countries on the deployment. Kenya agreed in October last year to lead a UN-authorized international police force to Haiti, but the Kenyan High Court ruled that the plan was unconstitutional last month. Political analyst David Monda tells viewers Douglas Mpuga that legal challenges remain irrespective of any agreement between the two leaders. It's a, a diplomatic move. I believe the Kenyan and Haitian government are trying to get some kind of reciprocal agreement together that will make it constitutional to have send these Kenyan troops to Haiti. However, the challenges still remain around the language question. The Kenyan police don't speak French. There's concerns about human rights abuses of Kenyan police in Kenya and how this will be done in Haiti. And then the fundamental question I think the Ruto administration hasn't explained to Kenyans is what is Kenya's national interest? in this mission to Haiti. When other more powerful countries are not intervening, uh, why should Kenya be the country to send troops to Haiti when there's so many problems in Kenya and within the East African region? Despite whatever uh, the leader of Haiti and the President Ruto agree, can that agreement circumvent the court's ruling, which also said the Kenyan National Police Service cannot be deployed outside the country? I think this will be open to constitutional interpretation because I think even if they sign the agreement, I believe the human rights organizations are still going to sue 
to say that uh, it is still not constitutional from a, a number of perspectives. And I think one of the big questions that's still up in the air is um, Prime Minister Henri is not elected. He's in office illegally. He doesn't have a mandate. So in whose name is he signing this agreement? Because constitutionally, he's not the president because his term ended. So I think this is another huge problem in terms of the legality of this decision. President Ruto posted on X, formerly Twitter, that Kenya associates itself with the people of Haiti because of a common heritage. In your opinion, is that reason enough for him to uh, try, by all means, to send troops to Haiti? I think it's, it's talking about a common heritage, which is a strong point in terms of uh, the global South developing nations helping each other uh, out of different problems. But I think, again, the broader question that uh, President Ruto has not answered has not brought before the Kenyan people is to say, why is Kenya sending these troops there? How is it in Kenya's national interest that uh, these uh, police officers are actually going to Haiti? And then uh, how will the police deal with uh, the half a million web guns that are in the street, the vigilante groups? What happens when Kenya police start getting kidnapped and start getting killed? Who will evacuate them uh, when conditions become really bad and untenable? So this case has not really been made to the Kenyan people. As much as we have the solidarity of black nations, solidarity in and of itself is not a national interest. That was David Moda, a professor of political science at City University of New York. He spoke with viewers Douglas Umpuga from New York City. The U.S. Institute of Peace is welcoming its 2023 Women Building Peace Award recipient, Petronili Vawika of the Democratic Republic of Congo, along with three finalists, including Hamisa Zaja of Kenya. Zaja is the founder and chairperson of the, of the Coast Association for Persons with Disabilities, a non-governmental organization in Mombasa, Kenya, that works to empower persons with disabilities. The Institute of Peace says these women stand as beacons of resilience, bravery, and commitment on the front lines of conflict. Hamisa Zaja tells me the recognition is an encouragement for her to do more. The award to me, to my family, and the community I come from, it's something huge something that uh, we didn't expect, but it also means that it's an encouragement, it's hope, it's a future, and uh, it's something that it will be driving me to my last breath. You lead an organization that works to empower people with disabilities. Can you describe for us just two ways in which you are helping to empower people? Many of persons living with disabilities, especially in our areas or in my country, don't get jobs. Even if they had gone to school, they have get education, they have degrees, they have masters, getting jobs according to their types of disability, it's very difficult. So empowerment is the only option we have to get our livelihood. So small, small businesses and initiative that um, uh, income generating projects, those are the type of empowerment that I do. If you are capable of uh, selling fish, we'll give you all the equipments and uh, an amount of money that uh, you're going to buy your first uh, start up and you start. If you are capable of selling vegetables, we'll do that. 
if you can um, work in, uh, for example, one of the initiatives that I have done is called individual businesses. Each and every person to get their own businesses according to the areas of where they come from. And one of the initiatives that I did is turning public toilets into income generating projects. All the public toilets, I got a partner, renovated the public toilets, and then now we hired, we hired cashiers, uh, cleaners, uh, those people who will be transferring funds from uh, the projects to the bank, and they get salary out of that. And uh, some youth groups and women groups and also persons live, living with disability groups, those who are not working to the project, they become suppliers. They supply the liquid soap, they supply the um, toilet papers, uh, they supply uh, water. So that's how also the other group get their income as suppliers to the projects. Now, in terms of uh, peace building, I mean, everywhere you look these days in Africa, you see conflicts. I'm sure also the people with disability that you deal with, they also have conflicts. How do you do it? How do you bring about peace? I brought peace because uh, persons living with disability needs a peaceful environment so that they can work and earn their livelihood. But uh, we found out that uh, we cannot work if our people are jobless and they are lured to conflicts, they are lured to drug abuse, they are lured to violence extremism, they are lured to radicalization. They lured into many, many groups and gangs, and they become robbers, they become terrorists, they become so many things. So this is where now, in regards to peace, I thought also I should include into my program youths, women, and persons living with disability to give them income-generating uh, projects that they will keep them busy. And of course, they will be generating money for them now to stop whatever they want to do. Ms. Hamisa Zaja, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk with us and congratulations. Thank you also for the opportunity. Thank you for the platform. Hamisa Zaja is the founder and chairperson of the Coast Association for Persons with Disabilities in Kenya. It is time now for Daybreak Africa's Post, and here is Samson O'Malley in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you. Good Friday morning to you too, James. We begin the sport with athletics, where double Olympic gold medalist, elite Kipchoge of Kenya, will be out to reclaim his title in the 2024 Tokyo Marathon this Sunday, where he set a course record of 2 hours, 2 minutes and 40 seconds. The 39-year-old is already in Japan in readiness for the marathon, where he is also expected to better his record in familiar surroundings. Kipchoge will hope to pay tribute to his fallen compatriot, the late Kevin Kiptoum, who holds the world record of 2 hours, 35 seconds from the 2023 Chicago Marathon, who tragically lost his life in a road accident on the 11th of February. Staying with Athletics, the world's best athlete will this weekend compete for honors in Scotland at the World Athletics Indoor Championships Glasgow 2024 from the 1st to the 3rd of March. A total of 651 athletes from 133 teams have been entered to compete in Glasgow. These weekend's campaign
competition in the Scottish city is the first of five World Athletics Series event taking place in 2024, a year that features the Olympic Games in Paris in August. Kenya is sending 12 athletes to the championships. Bernard Omar is Kenya's team's head coach. We've been sending teams to Indo and they're winning very well from 3,000 meters, 15, 800 meters. For the first time, we're sending a team for 600 meters by Omanyala and a relay team. And we are, we are happy with they're looking quite promising and strong. They're going to perform well. In women's football, the last four teams standing to contest for the two sports reserved for Africa at the 2024 Paris Olympics have been confirmed. Morocco, Nigeria, South Africa and Zambia, who interestingly are the four teams that represented Africa at the last FIFA Women's World Cup, are the final four remaining in contention for a place in Paris later this year. The final round of qualifiers will see South Africa facing Nigeria, while Zambia will take on Morocco in a two-legged fixtures between the 1st to the 9th of April 2024, where two teams are expected to emerge to represent the continent at the women's football event. And finally, in basketball news, as preparations for Basketball Africa League 2024 enter a crucial stage, Dabotan APR of Rwanda. The Rwandan champions are currently holding a 10-day training camp in Doha, Qatar, as a look to defy odds on their very first appearance at the Continental Premier Club basketball competition. Kigali has since 2021 been hosting BAL playoffs and finals, but no Rwandan team managed to leave the championship on home soil. APR's point guard, Michael Dixon Jr., says the team has been coming together as there's a lot of positive energy in camp. Uh, we're here in Qatar uh, having preparation for Basketball Africa League. Um, things have been going great. We've won three games so far. Team is really coming together and uh, a lot of camaraderie and positive energy and uh, good situations and success. And that's it for this Friday's edition of Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, James, in Washington.